0: I've been doing surveys and I can definitely see changes in attitude, and I can see that people are more inclined to write tests and they're more inclined to do refactoring or work in smaller steps, that they agree that these are good goals to have. And that's after very little coaching, actually. People changes in attitude you can definitely see.
1: Hi, I'm Lauri and you're listening to the DevOps Sona podcast from Ephicode. This time we're joined by Emily Bage, a technical agile coach and author and Sophus Albertson, DevOps Consultant and the Eficode Academy Headmaster. Emily has recently published a new book called Technical Agile Coaching with the Salmon Method. She has earlier published another book, the Coding Dojo Handbook. Let's listen in to the conversation on the themes and topics of the book between Sophus and Emily.
2: Hi, Emily, and welcome to the podcast, and thank you so much for joining.
0: Hello, Sophus, thank you so much for inviting me.
2: So, you and I have been remote colleagues in a prior company before. And one of the things that I really have, that especially have blown me away by the ways that you do things, is that you take needs from the customer and then you make it very applicable to them. So, you gamify or you make scenarios where it becomes tangible for them. Some things that are sometimes very untangible. One of the best examples of one of the things that are really close to my heart is the pipeline game that you created. Which in, in simple terms is a small game that helps technical and non-technical people reach a deeper understanding on the process of making a pipeline, making a build pipeline, and giving them a way to discuss this without the nitty-gritty details of around how Maven works or how Gradle works or how to do this and that in the language that they are using, but still in the overall ideas so of how do we deliver our software, how do we build it. So thank you so much for, for that one. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, I really enjoy making little games and exercises. It's one of the things I, I find really amusing just to try and come up with these things. So I'm really happy that the pipeline game has been so successful and is still being used. It's a few years since I did it and you were one of the people who play tested it. I remember. Oh, yes. Way back,
2: yeah, and I use it a lot by going out and being a consultant, especially because it connects the technical and non-technical people. And I have a, a small surprise that the physical game has now gotten a digital twin on pipelinegame.efcode.com. So,
0: oh, cool! Now, cool. in the
2: COVID nineteen situation, we can all actually play it still. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. I just uh, had a premiere with it uh, a couple of days ago, and it went fairly well from a a <laughs> first trial to to good. So it's all free and online, oh, and great. it's uh, open source as well.
0: I really need to have a look at that. I think that could be pretty useful. I mean, I've I've been you know playing it with the decks with some of my customers since then, but I haven't uh, been able to use it since the pandemic. So that's that sounds really good.
2: It's COVID safe to to use at least. Yeah. So. The reason why you are in this podcast is because you have written a book. Can you tell me a, briefly about like, the name of the title of the book, but also what it is for people who don't know your competences and experiences?
0: Right. So I've got a copy of it here. It's, it's called Technical Agile Coaching with the Saman Method. And I wrote it to talk about the way I work, really, and try and encourage other people to improve the way they do technical coaching. Now, when I say technical coaching I mean kind of um, I mean all the stuff that you need to do like around the code and and the pipeline and getting the software developers to work in an agile way with tight feedback loops in a way that's going to enable the whole company to be more agile and uh, deliver better software sooner faster all of that so The technical coaching that I've been doing is been doing for a few years now. It's, it's quite a specific style. And I just wanted to really write that down as something concrete that people could do to do technical coaching.
2: Yeah. And the reason why you called it salmon method is that I know you're living in, in Sweden, even though you can't hear the Swedish accent.
0: Yes. Yes. I lived in, I've been living in Sweden for over 20 years now, but I am from the UK. But yes. So salmon is a Swedish word and it means together basically. And I wanted to give the method a name so that people would be able to search for it on the internet and so on. And a big part of it is this ensemble working, which is where you get the whole team together working in a, as a team. And ensemble is a French word that means together. So I thought, well, let's take the Swedish word that is kind of equivalent. So uh, that's why I chose that word. Because it's, it's all about working with the whole team together to improve the way they work.
2: So in the in the book you have like two pillars that are the most important or correct me if I'm if I have misread it but you have the learning hours and then you have the ensemble work so one of them is gaining new features and the other one is the mob programming or example ensemble working as you are referring what are those two types of learning and why are they so important why are they the pillars that you've chosen for your method
0: so I've been involved with coding dojos and code carters and doing exercises to learn programming techniques. I've been doing that for a long time. I mean, that's what my first book was about, the Coding Dojo Handbook, about how you can use exercises in in a group to learn these skills. And that's still a really useful thing to do if you're going to learn technical practices like test-driven development and refactoring and working in small steps iteratively. It helps to have really easy pieces of code to work on, to practice on code cutters. So the learning hour is basically the latest evolution of, the, of that. It's um, But uh, with the learning hours, as you can hear from the name, it's it's only an hour. The coding dojos are generally a little longer. But I find doing it shorter and more often is more effective. And also really thinking about the structure of that learning hour and, and using active learning measures. And so I've been taking a lot of inspiration from this book, Training from the Back of the Room. And ways to engage people and get them to really to learn effectively. So the learning hour is, is really like it's a lesson that I prepare. And the ensemble working, that is where you get the whole team together and, and we actually do some work in their production code on some task that's typical for that team. And the reason I added that basically on top of the coding dojo thing is that, you know, I found that there was this gap. People would get good at doing code carters and then realise that, They could do TDD if it was an easy problem but their production code was not an easy problem you know (laughs) uh, it never really is (laughs) no it's a bit of a gap between the exercise and the production code so this is a way to try and bridge that to have the coach sitting with the team in their normal daily code base working on something that's familiar to them and trying to say okay well given this is the task we're trying to do how do we apply TDD in this situation how do we do refactoring safely here you know, all of these agile techniques, how can we apply them? And with the coach next to them and, and helping them, the team can succeed where they perhaps wouldn't have if they'd been left to their own devices.
2: So is it really that if you take pair programming, for example, the, the thing that misses in that context is the facilitator, that you say, but also that you are more people, so sharing the knowledge, or how do they compare towards each other, pair programming and mob programming or assemble working, as you as you call it?
0: Yeah, I mean you're quite right. Uh, pair programming—it's the natural, it's the natural evolution of when you have more than one, more than two people. Uh, it turns into a mob or an ensemble, and uh, a lot of the skills is is the same. And you don't technically need to have a, a coach or a facilitator f- for an ensemble either. But I would recommend it when you're first trying it out, honestly, because. With two people, you can be very fluid and it can just be quite natural and who's taking control and who's speaking. But when you get more people, particularly if it starts being six, seven, eight, nine people, which you can have in an ensemble, you need a few more kind of rules and a bit more structure and it helps if somebody is explicitly, yeah, I'm facilitating, I'm going to stop everyone talking at once. And you get these additional roles as well so that you you divide up the, the time so that you still have one person on the keyboard, just like in pair programming, somebody's actually typing, and I would call them the typist. And then you've got the the navigator role, because the typist is not supposed to decide what to type. That's got to be a whole kind of the whole team needs to contribute to that decision about what to type into the computer. And the navigator is like the spokesperson who is actually speaking instructions to the typist about please write this code. Please design it like this. Or the navigator says, I don't know what to do now. Somebody help me. And then somebody else in the ensemble will step in and and perhaps just give them a bit of advice and then step back. Or perhaps take over as navigator if they've got an idea about what to do.
2: So the Assemble work is not only a bunch of people sitting together, there are actually some specified rules beforehand and roles to make uh, make sure that, that it's efficient and that you actually gain the knowledge that you need, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I'm sure people do just get together and kind of hack in a group and call it ensemble working or mob programming. But in my experience, it can be so much better if you've got a few ground rules and, and roles. Um, yeah.
2: In my professional experience, when I talk to people about React programming and MOB programming, they all tend to say, yeah, yeah, it's good. I've tried it before, but uh, I'm not really using it in my current job. And they have many different reasons why why not to take these measures in. Typically, they say that the performance is not the same as individual contributions. So again, if you are pair programming, mean, then you are only gaining one of the person's productivity during that time. And I mean, with ensemble working, you get a eighth or whatever it is of productivity. Or the other one saying, "Oh, but I'm uncomfortable sitting together with somebody else. I mean, it's it's really they're nagging me, or or the other way around. I don't like the way that they code, so we argue too much and all of that." What your thoughts around that how can you break the ice because this is also a lot about it's not only about programming it's also about human interaction right
0: yeah absolutely and i mean i've heard those kind of things too i I agree so there's there's quite a big question there firstly i want to point out in the saman method i'm using the ensemble working very specifically to train techniques to transfer knowledge basically from me to the team we only do it in two hour sessions so if you're, if you're really, really concerned about productivity, the team has the rest of the day basically to go and do their work individually and, and carry on. I'm only asking them to do this two hours of ensemble working each coaching day and the learning hour, of course. And you can kind of slip that in with the managers as just, this is training. You know, they, they don't have to worry about the losing productivity. But ensemble working is such a bigger technique. You can do this all day, every day. And some teams do. And they find that productive. And And that can be more difficult for people to believe. But I would just uh, point out that if you have everyone working individually, you're kind of assuming that the individual has all the knowledge that they need to complete their task in their own head. And they don't need to ask for any help because they can do it all. And that assumption... For modern software development, when we live in such a complex world of so many tools and frameworks, what are the odds that one person knows all the tools and all the things they need to write all the software by themselves without asking anyone else? I mean, and the size of the problem that you're asking them to solve. Today's problems in software development, aren't they bigger than what one person can solve alone? Maybe the whole problem with productivity in software is that we're trying to get one person to solve a problem that needs seven people to solve because that's what software development is. It's constantly solving problems. (laughs) And uh, so that's basically what I, I kind of, the argument I make about productivity is, you know, software development, learning, solving problems. It could be easier in a bigger group. It could go faster.
2: I think you have a very valid point there saying that that we try to do as software developers are not doing things that are known, just like building a bridge or making a house. We do it with unknown materials. We do it with unknown end goal, with changing requirements. And for one person to be able to grasp all of that every single day, every single time they are productive... It's a it's a huge thing at least to say that we can do that and I think that very very few people have that ability and for the mere mortals the rest of us we could use some help from our friends.
0: Yeah. That's it's kind of like we we're going to go well we're going to go well together. And the other point you made about you know people not wanting to sit with that person because they don't like them or it's socially awkward or I think teamwork is is really important in software that's what all the best software is built by teams these days. So you, you there is definitely a, a point where you have to learn to work with other people. This ensemble working, I found that because it's got these clear roles and a clear rotation, I know what role I'm in, I'm not what, I know the kind of things I'm supposed to say when I'm in this role. It's socially, even for people who are a little socially awkward or um, shy, it's, it's kind of freeing. You know what you're supposed to say and do. And, and my experience is that people actually take to it when they don't even expect to you know
2: because they have rules in in the roles that they are having they know what to do they know they're part in the play yeah sounds about right but still if i may play the devil's advocate one one more time you have an example in your book around one person being the bus factor or the key person to do uh, kubernetes rollouts or whatever it is it doesn't need to be anything fancy but the person with the knowledge the one with the keys to the to the castle and by having that you are being very vulnerable as a team and as a company. If that person either finds another job or or doesn't want to do that anymore, then you all of a sudden lose the ability to maybe release your software, which is, I mean, very, very important for you. So there you argue that you have the mob that can actually go in and and distribute the knowledge. So now you're not having one person, but you have the entire team that are able to deploy or configure or whatever it is. But does that mean that with this method, with the summon method, that everybody should know everything? Or is there a fine line between having one person and having an entire team knowing everything? Because if we go back again to say that we don't think that the individual person can know everything, then is this not implicitly requiring them to know everything if they're introduced to all the bits and pieces of the entire process?
0: Right. So yeah, are we just exchanging one problem for another? One of the goals of the ensemble is that everyone should be able to work with the code that's written together so that after after the ensemble, everyone feels that they kind of in some way own the code that was written and understand it and could, could go forward with it. But it's not necessarily the case that everyone in the ensemble could have written that code themselves. So you if you've got the expert in the ensemble who, who knows all about Kubernetes or whatever it is, that technical details, and they have navigated the, uh, the code that was written in that area, somebody else has been the typist and typed that in, and everyone else has watched and seen the code being written, and they've heard the explanation, and they got to ask questions. But that doesn't mean that they're as expert as that person. But they could probably at least maintain that code even if they couldn't produce new code like it so but over time if they did enough then yeah they would turn into experts eventually i would imagine so i I don't think i'm claiming that suddenly the the whole ensemble becomes the experts it's it's just the expertise will flow into the group but it's not going to be immediate hopefully be in a better position than if that person was coding by themselves
2: I think that's the the key point here, being in a better position, because if you are uh, suddenly seeing something for the first time and your deployment failed and you need to change it right away, then you first need to be acquainted with it, make the exploratory kind of look and feel. And then afterwards, if you don't know anything about Kubernetes, then you need to go in and Google or YouTube something and and it i mean it's going to take you so much time to be just a teeny tiny bit proficient in this in order for you to change something that will help you where if you have seen it a couple of times before you know the vocabulary you know the terminology maybe you haven't set up a kubernetes cluster well okay fine by me if you haven't done that but you know some of the things so you are better off helping out than than you were if you haven't never heard about it before yeah so that's the first pillar, or that's the, one of the pillars, the ensemble. But you also have the learning hours. And, and as you talked about before, it's not just having one hour to watch YouTube videos and then you're done with it. There are some more things about it, right? Just like that we're not just a group of people doing whatever we want and then calling it ensemble work, then we're not just having an hour for ourselves to to go and read whatever we want. So can you tell me a little bit about more about the learning hours?
0: It's like a short lesson that I've prepared as the coach on a topic that I think is is relevant for the team. So it's carefully chosen to be something that's relevant. And the the training from the back of the room technique is, um, I've got the book here as well, actually. It's, uh, it's a book by Sharon Bowman, and she's written several books about active learning techniques. And she's not a software developer at all, but she's she knows how people learn. And she's got this model with four Cs To try And the learning hours are structured according to this model. Because before someone's prepared to learn a new thing, you have to connect. They have to connect with what they already know about that thing. So that's the first C. They have to connect with, I I already know something about this topic. Um, I'm going to connect with the people around me in the the same learning experience because we're going to learn together. Part of learning is social. And then, so when we're in a good state there, a good mental state, receptive to learning a new thing, the, the next one of the C's is concepts, and that's where I have to introduce a new idea for the team. And I could do that by just standing there and, and talking about it or showing some slides or, or showing a demo or something. That would be one way to do it. Or I could try and get them to find out about the concepts by um, getting them to go and do some searching around or, or looking at stuff that they already know or examining some materials and interacting with the thing they're trying to learn about. And then the the third C is is concrete. And that's where you actually get them to try and use the new knowledge in a concrete exercise. And that's usually in the learning hour. That's the longest part. We spend probably half an hour or something writing some code on a little code carter exercise and uh, trying out the new technique. And then the last C is conclusions. If people are going to remember what they learnt, I mean, all of these, you know, ways of getting people to remember things, making it tactile, making it spatial, making it visual audio, There's you, you've got to try and reinforce it in, in many ways. So the conclusions is a, a way you might get them to write down what they learnt or you might get them to speak to someone and tell them what they learnt. Or you might just get them to review what they did earlier and, and mark it and, you know, come up with their own exam questions and give them to one another. Uh, so it's, that's kind of all about trying to get them to remember what it is they learned.
1: Hi, it's Laurie again. We want to offer you the opportunity to learn from Emily. This is why we are handing out a few copies of her book to our listeners. All you have to do is to send an email to marketing at effico.com. We'll send books on a first-come, first-served basis. Anyway, you always have a better chance when you participate. As they say, you have to be in it to win it. Now, let's get back to show.
2: So revisiting the same topic over and over again to to reinstate and reinforce the learning experience here with different kind of methods with video, audio, and as you said, tactile, trying it out on on a dojo.
0: Yeah, so this 4C method is really trying to play with the the, the strengths of our our brains. People love to learn, actually. People like spotting patterns. People enjoy feeling that they're more competent today than they were yesterday. And you're just trying to tap into that to make the learning fun. And sticky. Sweet.
2: So there is this book that you mentioned, but uh, is there other places where you can say, well, I want to be better at conducting these uh, training materials? Where do you want to 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 highlight for people? Where can they go?
0: Right. Thank you. I would like to advertise my website, salmoncoaching.org. So the Saren Bowman, as I said, she's not a software developer. She's got all these ideas about how to structure learning. But on salmoncoaching.org you can find some prepared learning hours with this structure. And you can find activities and and quizzes and things that you can do that are about software that uh, link into this way of learning. And, of course, in the book, there's I've got 10 learning hours in the book written out fully. And on the website, I kind of maintain them and add more stuff. And it's all released on Creative Commons. You just have to credit me if you use it.
2: Sweet. Nice. It's always good to have good resources for this. I mean, we create a lot of, of training ourselves here in Efficode. And it's um, what makes a good training course is when people get it in their hands and can feel it and can try it out and can fail and learn from that as well. Finding out, okay, this was not the way that I should use Docker. Okay, then if I try this instead, how can I do that? How can I tackle this problem um, as an example?
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: But with all good training and with all good learning, for me at least, you can find there's so much difference between coming into a group that is well oiled, that is a good cohesion with them, that have good communication, trying to to convey knowledge to them is just like buttery smooth. It works so well. It's fantastic. But if you come into a group where you can see there are internal struggles, there are people that are afraid to speak up, there are uh, shadow leaders and real leaders that don't really position themselves as they should, then it becomes almost impossible to do these kind of things um, because everybody is so occupied by all the other things that are in the room rather than the training itself. So is psychological safety and a good working environment, is that a precondition for the summon coaching, or can this also be a tool to improve the psychological safety as a byproduct of of the of the coaching because you are a facilitator there?
0: I mean you make a really good point, Sophus. I'm sure that you've seen this and, and I I recognize what you're saying, that yeah, absolutely. Some teams you walk in and you start working with them and you realise, oh this is fun, they like each other. This is, uh, they're actually, you know, cracking jokes and, and the work is proceeding smoothly. And, and other teams, you're like, the work is not proceeding smoothly. And that's because there's, there's underlying conflicts here or they just don't like each other. So, uh, that's, <laughs> that's challenging. I, I agree with you. I'm, I'm, I've do definitely seen that. And the thing with ensemble working is I'm there as a facilitator and sometimes the focus, my focus is taken up. Hugely by just trying to get the group to work, just trying to get people to to not say the wrong thing at the wrong time, or or talk talk badly and and diss one another, and say shut up. I'm navigating things like that. You want to try and uh, get them to work together well before you can really start teaching them the rest of this stuff. So yeah, I see ensemble working as um, as a facilitator. I can start to do some things about that, but. I mean, I'm not really an expert. So that's one of the things I'm, I'm looking to maybe improve about the Saman method is, is how, how can I make it even more effective by working together with like team facilitators or agile coaches or people who really understand the people dynamics and are good at creating that kind of psychological safety. So I wouldn't call myself a real expert there. I just, I really know when it's working well, it works well. And when it's not, it's hard.
2: And sometimes you just need a, a true expert in, in psychology to crack some of these uh, things open. My, in my experience, at least with the technical agile coaching that that uh, that you introduced as well and, and other people have, have taken up and continued, is that if you don't have a truly toxic environment but just not a well-oiled communication platform, then doing these things will improve the communication, will improve the overall happiness of people because they are talking together and all of a sudden they are not making the same mistakes as they did before they are not making the same communication errors as they did before because they have now gone used to actually talking together uh, also around the technical parts and it's not as scary anymore to say I'm uncertain about this problem I'm uncertain about the new feature that I'm going to implement could you please have a look at it together with me so it, it the the barrier to help becomes uh, quite a bit lower.
0: I'm really happy to hear you've experienced that. Yes. I've I've also seen that, yeah, with teams. It's one of the things that teams report, actually, and I do a survey after the coaching and they report that, yes, I think our teamwork is better now, at least most of the teams. Yeah. But some of them are really, really hard.
2: Again, we can't fix everything. Yeah. But as you said, with the surveys that, that you that you're trying to measure this, because we are, at least with the, uh, with the introduction of the Accelerate book with uh, Nicole Fossgren and the rest of the team, we now see statistical scientific surveys that prove that, for example, having the uh, DevOps practices coming into your company will improve your bottom line. I'm quite sure that they phrase it in a quite bit different way, but that's at least what I take out of it. So how can we, do you have anything like that? Do you have scientific studies that will show that the salmon method will make your company more uh, profitable? Or at least how do you see that this actually works? How do you prove this to a, a potential new customer?
0: I wish I had the thing that would say, yes, someone coaching will improve your bottom line. You will make money. No, I, I don't have that. I'm afraid. I'm also really excited about the accelerate research and the way they've managed to link all these technical practices to actual real world bottom line outcomes. Cause I think that's really encouraging. And, and test driven development is one of the, the things that they, they point to as, as driving success with continuous delivery, which drives success with the business and reduces burnouts and stuff like that. So TDD is definitely in there in that research. But what with the salmon method, I want to, what I'd like to have is some kind of research that shows that the teams who go through it end up being better at TDD afterwards. And I have to say, I haven't really done very much that so far. I mean, I've been doing surveys and I can definitely see changes in attitude. And I can see that people are more inclined to write tests and they're more inclined to do refactoring or work in smaller steps, that they agree that these are good goals to have. And that's after very little coaching, actually. People change in attitude, you can definitely see. But I think it does take a while for people's actual behaviours and ways of working to change to the point where it's observable in terms of metrics like lead times or quality and bug counts and so on. Those those uh, effects take longer to filter through. And I haven't been measuring stuff long enough to have those kind of numbers yet. But I hope that someday this this will be there. I, at the moment, it's just anecdotes. It's like, you know, I know teams who've, who've after some coaching, have um, really embraced TDD. And I've seen That it can have a big effect, but I haven't got any measurements.
2: But the Agile Manifesto was also just hunches and stomach feelings from very experienced people. So, I mean, and that revolutionized our business uh, quite a bit. So that is uh, definitely something. And as you say as well, I mean, this looks or it, it it sounds like that the salmon coaching is also going to touch about the culture of the of the company or at least the team that you're working with. And culture is always super hard to change. I mean, what is it, Peter Drucker, that had the quote, "Culture eats strategy for breakfast"? So I think that some of the things, same things, applies here, right? That that uh, it is hard to change the culture, and you are trying to change the culture by Teaching people how to cooperate in a very structured way. To come back to trying to be the devil's advocate here, because it's no, it's no um, secret that I'm a fan of your methods. I think that they are actively helping people to do better, not only by self-esteem or or the niceness of being at work, but actually because it provides very good value for uh, for the customer. But when is this not the method to use? Because I mean, now you are selling it, and and of course you are um, you are you're having you've written a, an entire book about it. But is there places where you'd say, well, the summon method is, is actually not what they need right now, or they are not ready to adopt the method?
0: Right. So if the team is working loads of overtime because they're in so much pressure to deliver stuff, then they're not going to be able to to do this coaching. And that's a problem I've been having with with one of the companies I've been working for, that the teams have, have signed up for the coaching and then at the last minute had to say, no, sorry, we, we've got this deadline and we're all working overtime and we can't do this. And that's, it's, I'm glad they've realised that, <laughs> not just work more overtime. But yeah, that's that's a situation where I definitely pull back and say, okay, you, you need to have the space to to slow down a little so that you can learn some new skills and invest in your team and then speed up later and avoid that over time for the next deadline but possibly it's not going to help you for this deadline you know so that's when I definitely wouldn't go ahead with the coaching and also yeah and there's another situation I had uh, where the the feedback loop on the compiler was just so so slow the compilation took so long that you know, five people sitting on the ensemble waiting for the compiler for most of the session. It's like we actually we got around that in the end by finding a very small piece of code that we could compile by itself and work on that, and we we got through it. But that can be challenging too if if the technical environment is just too slow.
2: When your when your feedback loop is uh, is longer than than what uh, your heart can take, then <laughs> then it becomes very very hard. Yeah. So you talked about this when teams are stressed or working overtime, and I could see that some new potential customers would also say, well, how long should I do this or should we do this in order for me to see the benefits of it So do you have any measurements around how long does it take for a given team to reap the benefits of someone method?
0: Well, in my experience, the first thing that is happening is usually the team needs to learn the ensemble working roles and how to behave in each role and how to manage whole team programming. But in my experience, most teams that are mostly functional before the coaching can get the hang of that within the first coaching block of 10 10 coaching days. And then the, the second coaching block, then we can really start to focus more on the the technical practices than on the way of working. So I would always try and book at least two coaching blocks with the team right from the outset. Ideally, it would be kind of just on a a timetable of they'll keep having the coaching every so often until they feel it's no longer valuable, or or they would like to try something else. So yeah, I think that's kind of what I I would say. I, I don't know how long it will take for your team to become expert with TDD. But I think they'll probably learn ensemble working in the first block. And then then after the second block, we can see how things are going.
2: So just like anything else, riding a bike, you need to first learn how to do that in order for you to actually reap the benefits of it. Yeah. The first time you put into a new method, you are not going to reap the benefit of it. Seems about right. So who is your target audience for the book? Because when I read it, I felt like I was one of the target audiences there because there's a lot of practical exercises, but also geared towards the facilitator. So you use a lot of time in explaining how you would present a given exercise instead of just saying, read this through and try to do it on your own. So who did you have in mind when you wrote the book?
0: Well, I'm really pleased to hear you say, Sophus, that you felt that I wrote it for people like you, because <laughs> that's, that's really encouraging. Yeah, because I know that you're an experienced trainer and an experienced software developer, and you're just the kind of person who I think should be benefiting from this. So yeah, I'm writing for people who are, are technical, who write code, and, and also people who would like to make a difference beyond just improving the way they themselves code. Perhaps they want to help their team. And perhaps they are already in some kind of coaching or training role, and would like to do that even better. So that's really who I'm I'm writing for. But I also had this experience a couple of years ago, which was one of the things that that led me to try and write the book. Where I was coaching a team, and I was talking to their scrum master, and it turned out that she had only just become a scrum master, and only like a couple of months previously, she was a, had been a, a developer in the team. And I asked her about that that career choice that she she just made this decision. And she said, well, my manager encouraged me to, to go on a scrum master training course, because he thought I might have a flair for it. And I'm, you know, I'm interested in making a career for myself. So I, I tried it out and thought, well, yeah, I could do this. So, you know, I can do facilitating and building teams. And she'd chosen to change her role. And I was like, obviously very pleased for her that she'd found a role that she liked. But I was a bit sad that She's given up coding. And mate that was probably the right decision for her. But I was like, did did anyone point out to her that she could have become a technical coach? That there's this other career available that you didn't have to drop the coding and become a purely a kind of coach or facilitator manager. And I wanted to make it possible for there to be, and that other option would be just as obvious. Just like if you want to become a scrum master, there's any number of training certifications and career paths and really explicit for you to go and look at but if you want to become a technical coach I mean there isn't so much it's more of a kind of vocation that people fall into I don't know that's how I got into it so I'm kind of thinking there should be if by writing down the Saman method and making it accessible in a book you're like pointing out there's this other option you could be a technical coach. You could use the Salmon method. Look, it's really concrete and easy. This is how you do it. Well, easy, I don't know. But, you know, at, it's least, concrete it's, uh, at least it's concrete at least, yeah. So I'm kind of thinking um, that that manager, instead of advising their bright, young software developer, become a scrum master, they might pass them this book and say, have you considered a career as a technical coach? And I'm thinking this particularly for women as well, you know, who I don't know if the if you've never seen a technical a career as all the technical leaders in your organization are all kind of men. <laughs> are being an architect means growing a beard, um, <laughs> which you'd have no trouble with, Sophus. But I, I'm a bit challenged <laughs> in that department. So uh, I would like there to be kind of a, an option for all the women in the industry as well to see that they could become a technical leader. And this might be a good fit.
2: I think there are two very distinct, important things that you're saying here, that being an agile coach or a scrum master or something like that, it's all about the process, but it's not really about the technical part. But before you introduced technical agile coaching for me, I didn't know that that existed. So it was like a void where you could say that that there should be something there because being good at programming is not something that you just do. It's something that you train just like anything else. So why don't we have a coach for the technical part, just like we have a coach for the process parts as well? And yes, for people that might not be super nerdy into a very specific topic but is good at also explaining things then the the technical coach part of it is very intriguing
0: so i hope that it will be more people like you will think oh yeah i could be a technical coach and i don't have to give up coding i can use all my people skills and facilitation abilities and and that's going to be a fun career for me i think it's a fun career for me so could be for other people.
2: For those who uh, who haven't read the book yet, I think what I what I find very interesting in it is that you are not only sharing the method itself in a very narrow scope, but you actually fold it out just like you say now, saying how do you conduct a facilitation? Here's some examples of the exercises that you can do. It's important when you do this and this that you keep contact with the given people that you are working with. So it's also around a field guide towards becoming a technical agile coach and not only saying this is a method follow this method and you will be successful
0: yes so i'm trying to give a few hints to how to to make this into a career and that's another thing i'm thinking how to develop that how to make it even easier for people to get going with this kind of thing because i i think it it works it's valuable people need it there should be more technical coaches out there
2: i think definitely as well yeah Thank you so much, Emily, for joining. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And I hope that the book will be read by many, many people. I think uh, Technical Agile Coaches and Summon Method is a thing that we should have more in in the world. So is there anything you would like to, to say just uh, before we end this, uh, this episode?
0: It's been really great talking to you as well, Sophus. Thank you so much. And if um, I just wanted to point out, if you are interested to find out more, there's the book and I'm, I work for Pro Agile is a consultancy company and we offer this kind of coaching and maybe that could be useful to you or someone you know Thanks.
1: Fantastic. Thank you so much Thank you for listening If you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast and give us a rating on your platform. It means the world to us. Also check out our other episodes for interesting and exciting talks All I have to say to you now is take care of yourselves and keep up the zero day delivery